Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or straight from the tap at our website. Jeremy Goldcorn and his crack team sift through and curate news from 300 plus sources to put together a genuine feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today it's the third and final part of our interview with Ambassador Chaz W. Freeman. Hopefully, you've heard parts one and two because we pick up right where we left off last time. Jeremy, your question. Ronald Reagan, during the 1980 electoral race, was not necessarily on board with normalization, and made that very clear on the campaign trail. Chaz, can you tell our listeners what changed with Reagan's election with respect to China and Taiwan, and? What happened once he was in office? Well, he had two、uh, plans which he had announced. One was to restore official relations with Taipei, which would, of course, have undone the basic normalization bargain, and the other was to remove restraints on arms sales to Taiwan.、Uh, part of the reason that we reached an agreement to disagree with the Chinese on that was、uh, that President Carter undertook to. Uh, sell only carefully selected defensive weapons on a restrained basis to Taiwan.、Um, Ronald Reagan proposed no such restrictions.、Uh, in the case of the re- restoration of official ties with Taipei,、uh, he very quickly backtracked, and the reason for that was simple: he was stunned to find the level of cooperation the United States and China had achieved. In the wake of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan,、um, this included intelligence cooperation of some very valuable sorts, military relationships that blossomed under Reagan himself once the Taiwan arms sales issue had been set aside again,、uh, and uh, he uh, he quickly saw the strategic arguments in favor of the switch in diplomatic relations from Taipei to Beijing. Later,、uh, on the issue of arms sales,、uh, over the summer of 1981, his first year in office,、uh, there were mounting signals from the Chinese side that they might be prepared to undo normalization over this issue, and this culminated、uh, when Reagan went to Cancun in Mexico for an international development conference, met Zhao Ziyang, and then Secretary of State Alexander Haig. Uh, met with Huang Hua, the Chinese basically threatened to break relations without being quite so explicit. In January of the following year, 1982, President Reagan withdrew the idea of selling advanced fighter craft to、uh, Taipei, and、uh, he did this on the basis of a JCS Joint Chiefs of Staff study that showed that Taiwan really didn't need these. These were a political rather than a military. Gift uh, to uh, Taipei. We got into negotiations with the Chinese around February.、Uh, George Bush, then the the elder, then the vice president, came out to meet Deng Xiaoping and convey Reagan's seriousness about reaching a settlement of the issue.、Uh, and on August seventeenth, nineteen eighty-two, the two sides issued a joint communique regulating U.S. arms sales to Taiwan and. China, for its part, affirmed very strongly its policy of 
trying to exhaust all means of achieving a peaceful reunification rather than one by force. That communique governed the issue of Taiwan arms sales for a decade. It was very clear that uh, the cooperation in Afghanistan was key uh, in in influencing Ronald Reagan. Uh, let's talk about the extent of that cooperation. And were you actually involved in negotiating the terms of that involvement? When uh, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, which was Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1979, uh, this was a direct challenge to the interests of both China and the United States. And in January of 1980, Harold Brown, then Secretary of Defense, became the first defense official uh, to visit Beijing. And he said very clearly that uh, we would show through our cooperation with China that our two countries could respond effectively uh, to challenges to shared interests. And during that visit, uh, he interestingly went to Xinjiang and to Liaoning in, north, in the Northeast to review unidentified military forces and installations. And much later it came out, I should say I'm doing, I'm writing a chapter on the history of U.S.-China military relations, and I have been able to find public sources for everything that I'm, I'm saying. I'm not revealing anything <laughs> um, that, that, has, that is still effectively classified. The United States had uh, joint listening posts, electronic intelligence gathering facilities in both those locations and was training Xinjiang and in Liaoning, Xinjiang and, Liaoning and was uh, training uh, its Chinese counterparts, providing equipment uh, to monitor Soviet forces and their movements. And this program was already well underway when Reagan came into office. Of course, that was the uh, January of 1981, a year later. And it expanded tremendously over the years, uh, so that was one thing. Second, the United States uh, became a major purchaser of Chinese weaponry for the Afghan Mujahideen. The peak of this trade was reached in 1987, when the annual total was $630 million. What, what are we talking about? Are we talking about mainly small arms, or are we talking about... We're talking about uh, small arms, howitzers, Eventually, uh, ground-to-air missiles, we're talking about training, we're talking about um, mules mm -hmm. from Xinjiang for the Afghan Mujahideen, uh, some from Kentucky, which died of the <laughs> Afghan conditions, uh, had to be replaced with tough Chinese mules. Anyway, and in addition to this, another program throughout the 80s, uh, beginning later, uh, really after after Secretary of Defense Weinberger visited the Chinese military, was the purchase of Chinese advanced Soviet technology aircraft, full-flying aircraft and other machinery, so that uh, our pilots could practice against uh, well, the real things. Yeah. And uh, these are MiG-21s and so forth. And the reasoning behind this, of course, the Vietnam War was behind us. But the U.S. performance in the air over North Vietnam uh, was very spotty. Hmm. Uh, the Soviet aircraft turned out to be better in that war than ours. And many of the pilots were flying their first combat mission. They were nervous. And so the Air Force decided that what, what, what was needed was to give them some dogfights over Nevada. 
uh, and the Chinese obliged by supplying the, the means for that. This is not well known. It is, in fact, almost unknown, uh, although, as I say, it, uh, it has been noted in the public domain apparently so long after the events that nobody noticed. Fascinating. Extraordinary. Chaz, uh, when I was growing up in, in South Africa in the 1980s, um, I, uh, one of the big worries of my generation was being drafted. Uh, all white males were eligible for military draft starting age 16. Um, and I deferred uh, for high, to complete high school and deferred for college. And by that time, Mandela was out and apartheid was over and it was gone. But <clears throat> when I was a little younger, the fear was you would be drafted and sent to the border. And what we meant by the border was actually not the South African border, but the border between Nam- Namibia and Angola. Well, actually, <clears throat> actually and- South African defense forces were pretty deep inside Angola. Yeah, yeah, they sure were. Exactly. And inside Angola, the South African defense forces were deep. Um, I believe there was a lot of support from uh, the Reagan administration for UNISA, for Jonas Savimbi's uh, guerrilla organization, opposing the Soviet-backed uh, the uh, government, which was supported by actual Cuban soldiers. And the weird thing amongst all of this craziness is that I believe China, in fact, was a, a major supporter of Savimbi at one time. I, I have to ask, was there some kind of U.S.-China cooperation, uh, if you are at liberty to divulge any? And if not, in Angola at that time, are there similar areas uh, of uh, geopolitical strangeness where there are unknown aspects of China-U.S. military cooperation? Um, I think the answer is no. Um, uh, Jonas Savimbi, whose liaison officer I was for a while, um, had gone to the Nanjing Military Academy spoke very good Chinese, and when he didn't want his staff to know what we were discussing, would switch into Chinese for (laughs) the discussion. Um, uh, He was initially supported by uh, China. He was identified as a Maoist. Um, And, uh, of course, the Cuban intervention, Cuban-Soviet intervention, with the assistance of uh, Portuguese communist governor of Angola, as Angola became independent, decimated all of the opposing forces other than the MPLA, which was the uh, Soviet-supported uh, party, now the ruling party in Angola. Uh, so Savimbi then did a long march. Uh, he started with hundreds of men. He ended up with four, constantly bombed, strafed, and so forth along the way. Uh, he was a remarkable man. He read four hours a day, regardless of where he was. He was perfectly fluent in English, German, Portuguese, Spanish, Kyovimbundu, Mbundu, Lingala, Afrikaans, and Chinese, of course. And he, later on, South Africa began to support him. The U.S. did not initially. Uh, We had supported Holden Roberto, who was the brother-in-law of Mobutu Sesiseko in Zaire, now the Congo, and uh, Savimbi, I'm sorry to say, given your South African heritage, <laughs> loathed South Africans um, and hated the fact that he was dependent on the apartheid government for which he had no use Oh, I don't blame at him at all. all. <laughs> um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, I would say he was probably the most brilliant man I've ever met. And I remember particularly one occasion when 
the Milan anti-tank missiles that he had mysteriously obtained from some European supporter didn't work. There was a battle going on. One of his aides rushed into the room where we were talking and said, we can't make these things work. And uh, he said, well, give me the manual, which was in German, which he read. And then he said, we'll do this and do that in and, and Portuguese. And uh, off they went, and it worked. And, you know, he's, he turned to me in China and said in Chinese, you see what I have to deal with? Um, <laughs> but no, no cooperation at all. In fact, China was adamantly against Savimbi, um, not only because of his betrayal of the of the of the Maoist cause, but also because he was with the United States and more particularly South Africa, which made him which was the kiss of death. Right. So no, there was no cooperation there or anywhere else. And and in fact, um, in this period, we were still dealing with the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, uh, who, who China had supported, and who were frankly about as loathsome as you could imagine. Very good. Uh, despite this lack of cooperation outside of the Afghan theater, uh, my understanding is that in the 1980s, the PLA was quite admiring of the American military. Uh, you talked a little bit about that last time. Can you expand on that a bit? Tell me, what, how did that, that admiration manifest itself? Well, I think prior to uh, the Tiananmen student uprising and its suppression, uh, all of the military contacts to which I referred, which included, by the way, assisting the Chinese in the development of the F-8, of the J-8, sorry, right. which became the J-10, basically, Shenyang-produced interceptor. This cooperation included the production of anti-tank weapons inside China for the PLA and uh, artillery shells and some other things. The tow, the, 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 the two-launched optical wire-guided. Right, uh, and th- that was the... That was one of the elements of cooperation. Chinese military uh, admired the American military for many reasons. One, of course, was its technological capabilities, which came to a dramatic fore in the uh, Gulf War to liberate Kuwait. You had a front row Um, seat to that. I did have a front row seat to that. Um, The... Other reasons were, I think, the Chinese military did not like the absence of uniforms which, and the uh, egalitarianism that that implied. Uh, they themselves were striving for professionalism, and they saw the American military as the acme of professionalism. And as time went on uh, and military exchanges occurred, you began to see more and more evidence of American influence. The Chinese uniforms are very much like American uniforms. When you go on a Chinese destroyer or other warship, they press a coin into your hands to memorialize the visit. This is a U.S. custom Mm. that they've adopted. They also give you a little hat with the number of the destroyer on it, very much like uh, the U.S. Navy does. So I think one of the saddest things is that that's going on is that um, with the trade war and with uh, other deterioration in U.S.-China relations, a rather large reservoir of what I call fossil friendship on the Chinese side is being drained. That is a a real pity. Let's go back to perhaps a more hopeful era, uh, the early 1980s, Chaz. Uh, 
the issues you were facing when you first went to China in 1981 as uh, deputy chief of mission and then later as uh, charge d'affaires, what were the main things on your plate during that time? Well, we were in the midst of an effort to, within five years of normalization, which was 1984, the end of which coincided with my departure from Beijing and reassignment to Bangkok, we were trying in that five-year period to develop the sort of relationship we would have had with China had there not been a long interruption and uh, effort to ostracize China. So I personally participated in the negotiation of 36 treaties and agreements. These are foundational elements of the U.S.-China relationship. I undertook to plan the future development of the U.S. diplomatic mission in China. Before I went to Beijing, I oversaw a process that determined where our five consulates would be. Uh, We had had 14 before 1949. And uh, so I helped to open the consulate in Shanghai. I was present when Guangzhou was opened. I oversaw the opening of Shenyang. Uh, Chengdu opened on my watch. And Wuhan was left for later opening. Hmm. So it was a busy time. We were building from scratch. We were structuring a relationship. We were putting flesh on the bones of that structure. We were making decisions that continue to resonate in how U.S. and China deal with each other. A large proportion of those treaties that you worked on, those 36 that you signed, if memory serves, were scientific in nature. Can you you talk about what what the reason was for putting such an emphasis on uh, cooperation in science? This uh, was something that happened almost immediately after the normalization of relations. Frank Press was the presidential science advisor, and he was intensely interested in developing cooperation with China, and that helped. But there was a foreign policy objective. We wanted to entangle bureaucracies on both sides so as to make it difficult for the relationship to decline, uh, give it some resilience. And there were things to be gained from the Chinese. For example, Chinese astronomical records are by far the best in the world when you look at the ancient days. China has health records that record interactions between local environments and cancer and other afflictions of the human body that are unparalleled. If you look at the Chinese uh, zoology, uh, you will find not just the panda, but other unique species. Uh, One of the examples that I would use in that regard was when I was uh, the deputy chief of mission in Beijing, or maybe I was charge, a Dr. Ensminger of um, uh, the University of Iowa came out. He was a professor of swine science. Uh, And he pointed out that the average American sow is lean, the meat is very lean, but uh, those sows only have uh, six or so piglets, whereas the Chinese sows are fat and can have up to 12. So he said if we could breed the Chinese Chinese pigs with American hogs, uh, we could come up with a breed that was lean and had eight or ten. And actually that happened. So there were, and I should say finally, in the area of agriculture, people forget 
Citrus originates in China. All of the ornamental plants that we use, or many of them, from daylilies to rhododendrons and azaleas, are products of Yunnan. So there was an effort made in the 19th century by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to import Chinese fruits, vegetables, animals, and uh, we resumed that. Jeremy, do you happen to know the German word for orange? Um, no. <laughs> if I'm pronouncing it, it's Apfelschiene. Uh, That's right, Chinese, Chinese apple. apple. Right, right. But, apple you know, the, the basic word is Arabic. It's naranj, and right. uh, it comes in through Spanish and French. Right, right. And, uh, That's fascinating. Entangling bureaucracies and entangling our, our swine lines as well. That's, that's uh, fascinating. A love affair between pigs. Mm. So your career took you away from East Asia in the 80s, first, as you said, to Thailand in 85, uh, then to focus on Africa, uh, where I guess you were hanging out with Jonas Savimbi. <laughs> Among Polygon, others, yes. A man who I now want to research because he sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, and then, of course, to the Middle East and one of the most important ambassadorships during during a very important time, of course, in, in the Middle East. But uh, you were doubtless keeping an eye on what was happening in China and through most of the 80s, I think it's fair to say that there wasn't much to really roil the waters diplomatically between the U.S. and China, uh, at least until the end of the decade. Yeah, the 80s were a good time. They were. Um, they were a time when the two, two sides were growing together. Uh, we went through a phase of initial familiarization and then proceeded to broadening cooperation. And that all came to a halt in 1989 for three reasons. Uh, first, the... Soviet Empire collapsed, and that deprived the relationship of its strategic rationale. Uh, second, June 4th, the Tiananmen suppression occurred, uh, and that drained the warmth from U.S.-China relations. And finally, as 1989 proceeded, Taiwan, which had been a Leninist authoritarian society, democratized. And suddenly, human rights which had not been a factor in balancing Taipei with Beijing, became a factor. Right. So these three things altered the trajectory of U.S.-China relations considerably. Charles, speaking of uh, some of those events, uh, over the years you've made remarks on some of the contentious issues the U.S. has with China, uh, and some of your remarks have not landed well on certain ears. Uh, for example, there's the issue of Tibetan independence. Could you talk about what you've said in the past about Tibet first uh, and whether your views have changed at all in the last 20-odd years? No, I don't. Uh, my views have not changed. I don't see any reason why Tibet being part of China should be any more controversial than Wales being part of the United Kingdom. The periods when they were put in that position are about the same. I uh, recall, as probably most people don't, that the Central Intelligence Agency, with assistance from some of China's neighbors, put $30 million into the destabilization of Tibet and basically financed and trained the participants in the Kampa Rebellion uh, and ultimately sought to uh, remove the Dalai Lama from Tibet uh, which they did. They escorted him out of Tibet to Dharamsala, where he was already guaranteed a warm welcome. 
Uh, so I think the issue of Tibet is far more sensitive on the Chinese side uh, than many Americans understand. It's part of a very tangled U.S.-China Cold War history. I don't know that, I mean, I think the Chinese have made a whole series of dreadful errors in how they've managed Tibet, starting with the Cultural Revolution, which was particularly destructive uh, in, uh, in Tibet, but uh, continuing through the neglect of traditional Tibetan culture and the obvious preference of the authorities for Han Chinese uh, settlers. Tibet is, of course, uh, a very amorphous concept. Tibetans are present in Xinhai, in Sichuan, in Yunnan, in particular in Guizhou. And so uh, this is a minority people who are widely distributed throughout mountainous areas of, of western China. They have a distinct culture, it's a distinct language, and that hasn't always been respected. Finally, uh, I think Chinese policies on religion have been erratic, to put it mildly. At the moment, there is severe suppression of Islam in Xinjiang. In the past, China has not been very accommodating to Tibetan Buddhism in Tibet, even though Tibetan Buddhism is, in fact, Chinese Buddhism. That is, the Dalai Lama's authority is recognized by all Chinese Buddhists, whether Han or Tibetan. Do you think that what's true about Tibet is also largely true of Xinjiang? Uh, that is, I mean, I mean, perhaps I'm wrong, but it's, it's my sense that here in the U.S. and in European capitals, uh, views about Tibet and views on Xinjiang and about Beijing's policies toward the both have very much converged recently, so that they're almost interchangeable. Yeah, I think there are different factors in Xinjiang uh, because Xinjiang is inhabited largely by Turkic-speaking peoples. Uh, the Han Chinese and Tajiks are the exception, but and of course Mongols. But the uh, Uyghurs and the Kazakhs, who are very large uh, pluralities, not a not a not a majority, in Xinjiang, have the support of Turkey, uh, an external home, if you will, uh, through Pan. Turkism. Uh, and that makes it very different from Tibet, which is sui generis. Also, the CIA programs in Tibet, which were quite effective in destabilizing Tibet, did not succeed in Xinjiang. There were similar efforts made with the Uyghurs during the Cold War, but they never really got off the ground. But basically, in each case, you have religion waved as a banner in support of a desire for independence or autonomy. And um, this is, of course, anathema to any state. Um, I would say, finally, that um, I do believe that the principle that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones applies here. I'm part American Indian, and the rest of those people are not here in the numbers they once were uh, because of severe genocidal policies on the part of the European majority uh, in the country. So I remember once being in, uh, in Moscow, Idaho, where the, where the university is located, and being asked about Tibet and oh, what a crime it was that the Chinese were in Tibet and so forth. And I said, well, who do you think lived here 80 years ago? And where are they? Uh, at least they're alive someplace. China's long historical memory is often remarked on, uh, but now it's been... 
29 years since uh, the brutal suppression of the 1989 student demonstrations. You know, it's been a whole generation. It remains one of the first things, though, that comes to mind, at least among a certain segment of the American population, if not maybe most of them. And it has me wondering whether the American historical memory might be growing longer. Um, what ex- what explains for you the enduring memory of Tiananmen in the American mind? Uh, is it a good thing? And how has this long American memory impacted the U.S.-China relationship? Uh, the uh, suppression of the Tiananmen student uh, demonstrations was a moment of profound disillusionment uh, to those Americans who had assumed uh, that China would evolve to become just like us, uh, whatever that is. And uh, it sticks in the memory because it was a shock. I don't think it should be a shock. I think the shock represents a loss of historical memory on our part. Nobody remembers the, uh, the Veterans Army on the Mall and what uh, General MacArthur did, yeah, what General MacArthur did to them. So I don't think any society takes kindly to the idea of demonstrators impeding the function of its government uh, by occupying areas. Uh, and uh, I, don't, I think, therefore, what was surprising about Tiananmen uh, was that it took so long for the Chinese to repress it. Uh, and in fact, the Chinese leadership's after-action review of the question drew, that, conclu- drew the conclusion that had they intervened earlier, there wouldn't have been the level of loss of life and the disruption that occurred. Uh, so I think in the United States, as opposed to China, where this is largely forgotten as a result of deliberate government policy that has suppressed memories of it. Many Chinese students arrive here with no knowledge whatsoever uh, of this element of their recent past. I think here, the assumption among many liberal-minded people in, the acad- in academia has been that this must be the central organizing feature of Chinese politics and an obsession for Chinese. It isn't. It isn't because Orwellian measures to suppress memory work. Sometimes I think we don't need those because our most endearing characteristic is our amnesia. Why did it take them so long for the suppression to actually take place? I mean, I I think there were a lot of factors that militated against it. Uh, Hu Yaobang's death, uh, he had been removed as general secretary, but he was still a Politburo member, and there was he was due a state funeral, so they had a window there. There wasn't any chance, in spite of how angry the April 26th editorial was, that they wouldn't have continued until May 4th. There was already so much momentum toward May 4th. And then already all those, uh, because of, of the Asian Development Bank meeting, there were all these cameras in town, including cameras by this well, newly minted 24-hour cable news network. Called and Sina. Gorbachev. Yeah. And Gorbachev was coming a couple of weeks after May 4th. So, so I think there were multiple factors. Uh, first, there was shock in the Chinese leadership. Sure. These were their own kids. And those kids were connected to factions inside the Politburo. And so you had people like Li Peng and Zhao Ziyang who were on totally opposite sides of, uh, the, of the debate inside the Politburo um, about uh, what should be done. I think the... Um, uh, there was also the factor that you mentioned. There was the ADB meeting. There was Gorbachev coming. 
Nope, they didn't want to do anything really awful before these things happened. And so that kind of added to the indecision. Uh, in the end, I think Lee Pong pulled a fast one on Zhao Ziyang when he was in North Korea. Yeah, he happened and, to be there on the 25th, right? And, uh, right. and uh, anyway, this was in fact a transformative moment in Chinese politics, not in the way that the students intended, uh, but it discredited public demonstrations against the government. It sideswiped democratization in Hong Kong, and it destabilized the succession to Deng Xiaoping. There's no question it was an awful, awful tragedy. Do you think the tinder was dry at the end of 88 and early 89? Was this something... I, I mean, my sense of it was... I, I lived there. I was a student there. Uh, the place wasn't seething with dissatisfaction. There were people who had very different ideas about reform. I mean, there were a lot of people who were were hoping that they'd step on the brakes sooner. They were worried about losing their iron rice bowls. And then there were people on the other side who wanted to deepen commitment to reform and wanted to see a, a bold statement of... Well, it's incredibly com complex because I think one factor in all this uh, was that Hu Yaobang had been very open to ideas, notoriously so, sometimes silly ideas. Getting rid of chopsticks. Exactly, that kind of thing. Or saying that, uh, as I once heard him say, that uh, China had never gone through a feudal period and, and that feudalism had been imported in the form of the Soviet system <laughs> of industrial feudalism, and China had to go through a period of capitalism before it could achieve socialism, which, um, you know, is pretty wild stuff in the Chinese context. Anyway, this sort of ventilation, this channel of communication uh, to the top that he had managed uh, obviously disappeared with his death. And um, finally, there was inflation. Uh, there was serious economic deprivation in the populace. In the 1980s, Already there was tremendous restructuring of the economy and unemployment. And there was a sense that, on the one hand, things are getting better. That's usually when revolutions happen, when they fall short of expectations. And uh, on the other, that there were a lot of problems and no real limits on what you could say. So the Tinder wasn't as damp as I, I may, may have supposed it to be. I, don't, I think you're right. There wasn't general dissatisfaction, but there was a ripe moment for an explosion. My sense has always been that they had almost the surfeit of, of symbolic weaponry at their disposal. They had that all these nice round anniversary dates, the 70th anniversary of May 4th. And Helps. The 200th anniversary of the French Revolution and the Helps. 50th anniversary. Yeah, all these, these things. That, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, those were triggers, yeah. perhaps. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it, this is an incredibly... A complex uh, issue. I don't think we'll ever fully understand exactly why it happened. Um, I had predicted, by the way, in that paper on China in the year 2000, that there would be um, public demonstrations and disturbances. And of course, of course, those have actually become a feature of daily life in China. Uh, the number of occasions in which the uh, uh, armed, people's armed police have to come out and suppress demonstrators is astronomical. Uh, and in a sense, this was a, a series of local demonstrations in Beijing uh, by the children of the elite, 
joined by some others. In Chengdu, uh, by similar people. In Shanghai, uh, anyway, a whole series of demonstrations, I think each focused on slightly different issues. And certainly what it taught the government was to make sure that uh, these uh, different groups of people in different localities cannot network. Um, that's a lesson that one can see <laughs> they've learned if you look at internet censorship. But I, sure, we, the- we're running long, and I, I'd really like to uh, go back, fly back across the Himalayas, Charles. All you right. spent a number of years in India, and you shared a story earlier about your time in Kerala. Uh, the People's Republic of China and India were both uh, born, in a sense, at roughly the same time, India achieving independence uh, from Britain in 1947 and the founding of the PRC just two years later. I know it's a, 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 a ridiculously large question to ask, but can you offer any comparative observations on the two countries and on the trajectories the two countries have been on in recent decades. And maybe if this is not uh, piling just one too many questions upon all of this, could you comment on the strategy that Beijing at least believes that the U.S. has pursued since Bush 43 and the nuclear deal with India? Ah, those are a lot of questions. Just answer any or as few of them as you like. (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes a big difference that Whereas India was directly taken over by the British and ruled by them in one way or another uh, for over a century, probably almost two centuries, China was only semi-colonized. It did not, with the exception of the treaty ports and other islands of extraterritoriality, it did not directly come under European uh, dominance or rule. And Uh, This makes a big difference. India achieved its independence uh, with some violence, but mostly as an evolutionary process, uh, and it retained the institutions that the British had bequeathed it. Uh, China had no institutions from Europe to retain, and uh, the People's Republic of China was born entirely in violence. Chairman Mao was right when he talked about political power coming out of the barrel of a gun. Uh, So the birth of the two two states was radically different. Uh, When you add into that, of course, the partition in India, which was a nightmare of an orgy of murder and mayhem um, between Pakistan and and India, uh, you have a further distinguishing matter. The, uh, The two cultures are remarkably different. India is obsessed with religion. Its population is divided into castes. The class structure of India is uh, remarkably hierarchical. Uh, That is to say, you have some of the smartest and best educated people in the world, some of the wealthiest, and you also have 40% of the population that is illiterate and malnourished, many cases illiterate because of the malnourishment and the damage it does to the human brain to be malnourished as a child. Uh, China, by contrast, has always been far more egalitarian. It has had not a princely structure of government, but one that purported to be meritocratic, uh, the Chinese civil service. And by the way, talking about China and India in that regard, there's a very interesting factoid that Uh, may interest you, and that is um, when the British 
had to form an administrative cadre for India, uh, the Indian civil service. Uh, they had the Chinese system in mind. And the Chinese system, of course, depends for admission on examination in the classics. There were no relevant classics, so they, clearly they didn't want to have uh, little Englishmen, little English boys learn Sanskrit and Hinduism, uh, which were the organizing principle of India, even under the Mughals, the, who were Muslim. And uh, the classics, as they were known in Europe, Roman and Greek literature were not relevant. So they invented English classics. This is how Shakespeare was proclaimed a classic. And to this day, Indians who prepare themselves for the Indian Administrative Service, uh, which succeeded the ICS, can spout entire minutes Max. of sh Shakespeare um, because they needed that for the exam. Wow. Um, so this is a case where Confucian bureaucratism inspired British bureaucratism. And red tape, of course, was invented in India, literally. That's what the files were tied up in. And that's why we talk about that. Uh, so there were some interactions of, an, un, of a most peculiar nature. Americans get China wrong a lot of the time. Uh, we also get India wrong. Uh, we imagine that India is a potential ally. It's not. It's an independent country that jealously guards its independence. And like China, it wants no entangling alliances, to coin a phrase. So the U.S. looks at India and on strategic grounds thinks, aha, uh, they will align with us in an alliance to block Chinese influence in the rest of Asia. But they won't. And they all, we look at India and we say, aha, the world's largest democracy. Surely we have an ideological affinity. Uh, but the Indians have no interest in exporting their ideology at all. And in fact, the genius of Hinduism is totally focused uh, on India itself. The human rights situation in India, by the way, is not too good. Ask anybody from Kashmir uh, about that. Uh, so uh, there are imagined affinities which draw us together, they do, uh, but never close enough to satisfy the American desire for Indian subservience. Charles, uh, again, to sort of move uh, locations, how damaged is the American capacity to exercise wise diplomacy? Do you think that another Trump victory in 2020 would deal at a final blow? Or is it resilient enough that it might still recover? I am very concerned that the U.S. government is in the process of depleting and lo losing its capacity to act, not only domestically but internationally. Uh, the devaluation of expertise and experience is extreme. Uh, many positions are not staffed, even to this day. Uh, others are staffed with political hacks, with no claim to any competence on the subjects they've been assigned. In fact, some of them are deliberately destroying the very functions that they have been put in charge of. I think of environmental policy as an example. Scott Pruitt. So, yes, and so, uh, and not just he, uh, but... Zinke, too, yeah. So I think um, uh, at the moment, the trend is very clearly toward an ever-increasingly incompetent U.S. government, and that has been the case in diplomacy as well. When you add to this uh, what I call fiscal anorexia, 
That is, uh, the American public imagining that we're overtaxed and government is too big, then you have a real problem. We are financing our current government operations, including our wars, with credit rollovers. We're not saving, we're not investing, and um, in the middle of all this, uh, there's much disparaging comment about government, and basically you get the government that you pay for and expect, and in our case, we're not paying and we have low expectations. So I am very concerned about this. The, the policy process in Washington has broken down. Some people have analogized the Trump administration uh, to a chaotically burning dumpster fire. I've certainly been one of those people. Uh, I want to I end with a, a question that I, th I thought was, was fascinating. In, in that Stu Kennedy interview, you said something quite profound and intriguing about tradition and modernity and the irony that the self-proclaimed torchbearers of traditional China, the Kuomintang on Taiwan, actually were the ones who had broken with tradition to create a truly modern polity. I'm paraphrasing you. Uh, but you said, and I quote here now, but the Kuomintang ideology stressed that it was the Kuomintang that was true to Chinese tradition and that represented the past, while the communists, by contrast, were breakers of that tradition. In fact, what the Kuomintang inadvertently was producing in Taiwan was something that broke quite thoroughly with the Chinese past, while the communists, despite all their efforts at reforming Chinese society on the mainland, in many ways reinforced that past. Uh, you've been able to observe the branches of the Chinese family tree as they've developed over these last few decades. At least in some regards, it seems like they've converged. And as somebody who spent a lot of time both in China and in Taiwan, as I have, my sense is that the PRC has in many ways become more like Taiwan than the other way around. Uh, what's your, your sense? Well, I agree with you, but I would say more like Hong Kong than more like Taiwan. Hmm, okay. It's interesting if you knew ancient Mandarin as I did, that is before Hong Kong took over China, um, you had uh, words, uh, let's say, um, Bangonglo, uh -huh. which now are Xiezolo. Uh -huh. That's Cantonese. Xiezolo right. um, is Cantonese. Xiezolo is Cantonese. Uh, and so, uh, again and again and again, when you look at contemporary China, you see a Hong Kong Cantonese influence that is almost invisible to people who are just coming into China at the, at the moment. Um, and uh, Taiwanese, which is you know yet another dialect, again, with an archaic sound system by comparison with Mandarin, has had no impact. But uh, I agree with you. Taiwan has continued to evolve a democratic society with a high respect for the rule of law and human rights. In many ways, it's, it's an admirable place, certainly the most modern society that's ever existed on Chinese soil. And I include Hong Kong in that oh, yes. uh, because of its ersatz yeah. nature. The mainland uh, has also evolved in its way. Unfortunately, at the moment, it is evolving or devolving, perhaps, uh, into some new form of authoritarianism. Maybe that's temporary, as we discussed, uh, but it may turn out to be a long-term and irreversible trend. So the two societies began to grow together because the mainland changed, not Taiwan. Now they're growing apart because the mainland is again changing. Ambassador Charles Freeman Jr., our deepest thanks for taking so much time to speak with us. You've given us an awful lot to think about. 
you guys are fun to talk to. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Chaz, I promised listeners that we would do recommendations at the end of this show uh, since we skipped them in part one. So let's do that now. Uh, but first, I do want to remind our listeners very quickly that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for our email newsletter or better still, kick in a few bucks a month and show your support by becoming a premium access member, which entitles you to all sorts of goodies, including ad-free versions of this podcast. And if you like the podcast, please do leave us a positive review on the iTunes store. Thanks in advance. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you get things rolling? Sure, will do. I, I had uh, something prepared when we first started recording this series, uh, but I was in Fiji and now I've forgotten what it is. And in the course of today's conversation, um, I thought of a website that I've started reading quite a lot of recently called Maka Angola, uh, makaangola.org. Um, and it, uh, their tagline is supporting democracy, fighting corruption. So it's kind of activist journalism, I guess. Uh, but in particular, I'd like to recommend a story called Isabel dos Santos, the fall of Africa's richest woman. Uh, and it's uh, about, uh, uh Isabel uh, dos Santos, the daughter of, uh, the former, uh, Jose Eduardo leader Santos. of Angola. And, you know, with his, uh, fall from power, her business, uh, which, you know, she'd always said was based on her extraordinary entrepreneurial abilities uh, and is based in certain cases on Chinese loans, uh, her business seems to be uh, not doing so well. And together with that, I'd like to recommend the Financial Times a few years ago did one of their lunch series uh, where they had lunch with Isabel Dos Santos somewhere in London. Those are always fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she's just one of these uh, extraordinary creatures that the continent of my birth uh, produces that is sort of fascinating in the way that a puff adder is. <laughs> oh, my God. That's terrific. Chaz, what do you have for us? Um, I'm speechless. Um, I'm thinking about Isabel dos Santos. and You uh, must have met her. I, I did, but, you know... All right, so what I'm reading at the moment is uh, SPQR, which is Mary Beard's uh, uh, quite imaginative history of Rome. Um, I've read a lot in Latin as well as in English about Rome, uh, but she uh, corrects a lot of my uh, misimpressions uh, by doing serious uh, literary and historical research um, and raising questions about the received narrative. So I'm finding this uh, something very interesting. Uh, I'm sorry to say that at the moment I'm not reading anything about China other than uh, contemporary uh, magazine, uh, newspaper, internet And you wouldn't articles. want to re recommend any of that. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> well, thanks. That's, that's great. Uh, you know, I have, I've wanted to, to take on the Mary Beard books, SPQR, of course, to begin, uh, and have not yet, uh, but uh, now this is this is a good. Uh, it's summer, you know. I've got a vacation coming up. I need some summer reading. I may I may start that. Uh, my recommendation. Hey Kaiser, here's a Mary Beard recommendation um, related. She edited a series of books that include Jeremy Barmay's book on the Forbidden City, which, uh, if you want the best single thing to read about the Forbidden City, in my opinion, uh, it's that book edited by Mary Beard. I should say on the subject of Rome. Um, one of the most improbable and most entertaining and educational series of books I have read um, is by um, McCullough, 
the Thornbirds author, who actually hails from Norfolk Island originally, and who was a classicist as well as a, chemi- a chemist. And she wrote a six-part series uh, around the life of Julius Caesar, beginning with his presence in the womb of his mother and ending with the civil war that followed his assassination. And it is the most fascinating account relevant to our current situation of the collapse of a republic as repeated people uh, make choices out of expediency to bypass the law and the constitution and thereby bring it down. And Julius Caesar is, of course, the culmination of a political evolution toward autocracy, for which reason he was assassinated. But there are wonderful characters in this. The writing is lively, and the peril to republics of military adventurism is amply demonstrated. That's terrific. Two Rome-related recommendations from Ambassador Freeman. Mine are going to seem terribly shallow at this point, but in, in honor of the trade war, <laughs> I want to recommend AliExpress, uh, where you can buy the most unbelievable range of stuff directly from Chinese sellers uh, and get it delivered surprisingly quickly. I just bought a handmade, excellent quality, 43-pound bamboo composite bow and uh, a Two dozen bamboo turkey you mean feather flesh. Yeah, 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 forty-three pound, right? The, uh, you know, I, I was I was a decent archer when I was in junior high and high school. It was a, a big hobby of mine, and I decided to take it up again. And I promise this has nothing to do with the fact that deer have, for now, the third time eaten all of the flowers that my wife painstakingly planted in our front yard garden. <laughs> That's what you get for living in the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. Well. I'm I'm in the woods. It's worse than suburbs. I'm I'm, I'm really deep in the in the woods. Uh, but my poor wife is very unhappy, and I think she may take up archery now as vendetta. Crossbows work better. Yeah, crossbows work better. Is that an Ali Alibaba company? I, I know. Here I am rec- recommending an Alibaba company. So you're shilling for Alibaba yeah, I'm now? I'm done with shilling for Baidu. I'm shilling for Alibaba. Yeah. Of course, in the Middle East, the watchword is um, whenever you do business, you're dealing with the 40 thieves. Right. <laughs> and the trick is to figure out which one of them is Alibaba. Ah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a hint. It's the little guy with the raised ocular ridges. It looks like E.T. Anyway, that is our show. And thanks once again to Ambassador Chaz Freeman Jr. for his tremendous generosity. What a delight to finally make your acquaintance in person. My pleasure to meet you. Uh, Jeremy, uh, welcome back. <laughs> thank you very much. And, uh, you know, thank you uh, very much, Chaz, for uh, allowing me to intrude on you from uh, parts near and far via telephone. On the contrary, uh, the fact that you had to, quote, dispose of your children, unquote, is quite <laughs> alarming. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling ice. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing by Kaiser Guo. Make sure to check out some of the other shows in the expanding universe of the Seneca Network, including our new show on women in China, New Voices. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and tell a friend about our show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.